This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is public intellectual. Daniele Valelli. <laughs> <laughs> public intellectual. <Yeah>. Gross. <laughs> and this is South Paul. So today on the podcast, we have historian, author, and public intellectual, Daniele Valelli. (laughs) (laughs) Public intellectual, gross. Because, you know, you have a big social media following, and I think people do turn to you to ask you how to think about things. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, public meaning like you actually engage with the public. Sure. That part, I don't mind that part. I think <laughs> you know what it is, is like the whole idea of intellectual. I find it, I don't know. I've read too much Conan the Barbarian, I think, but I have like, <laughs> oh, and I'm, let's clear it up. I'm bothered by both the, we are intellectuals. We are the academy. Fuck you. You don't know how to tie your shoes. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm also bothered by the anti-intellectual stuff that they think they are like me through redneck i'm not corrupted by your stupid intellectual ideas we are no you are a dumbass that's different it's like (laughs) to me there's like in Taoism, there's that three level game right where it's like at the or at the base level they're just ignorance and ignorance i mean it's something cool because you have some spontaneity but you're still ignorant there's some there's a problem there Level two, you learn. So you are no longer ignorant, but you are weighed down by the heaviness of all your intellectual learnings. And so it's better than ignorance, but it's still not a good life. You're still, now you're trapped in your head all the time. And at the third level is like when what you needed to get, like you turn knowledge into wisdom. And then it's, you have something real because you are spontaneous again. You are more in touch with something where you can talk to anybody, but it's a different game than the, the, to me, the second level is the intellectual game, you know, when you're kind of still too stuck in that nerdy game and, and the one and two yell at each other with, we are the true good people because you're not corrupted by your stupid intellectual influence. And the other guy's like, you guys are just ignorant scum. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not at home in either camp. I find like, get me out of here as fast as possible when I'm around. If I'm around the academia, I want uh, the Jess Bleed crowd at UFC. It's like, give me those guys. <laughs> then I'm around those guys for six seconds. And I'm like, okay, my annoying academic friend is probably better than hanging out here. <laughs> and it becomes a ping pong game back and forth. So you do still teach at a couple of universities, right? Santa Monica College and Cal State Long Beach. And you teach history? Yeah. And then you also are known for two podcasts. Mm-hmm. One is History on Fire and the other is Drunken Taoist. Mm -hmm. Uh, How would you describe both? Drunken Taoist is more of a chatty, whatever we feel like covering kind of podcast. There's no single theme. Um, We do two episodes a month. One is with guests. One is just me and my co-host, Richie Verse, chatting about life, the universe and whatever. And it's really kind of one of those 
in that sense as more the rogan model where you take whatever you feel like chatting about and you jump into it so one day you'll be talking about one topic another day is a completely different thing which is a problem as far as uh, audience goes because audience tend to gravitate to something they can easily label and recognize oh it's the history thing it's the philosophy thing it's the mma thing it's the if you are all over those things it's a little rougher to because people need to dig you more than they need to dig a topic Mm. whereas history on fire pretty clear you are you're there for history and oh you happen to like my approach but you're really there for history you're not there for me specifically but history is such a big topic and there's several history podcasts and uh, even youtube channels that focus on it how do you scrub out what topics you want to talk about yeah i mean a few things have to check um it needs to be an epic story it needs to have that game of thrones holy shit can you believe it kind of vibe it needs to have characters because if it's like history from above where you look at it and you're just talking about impersonal historical forces but you don't see it through somebody's eyes it's hard to build a narrative because people care if there are people if there are characters they care about it's like any good storytelling if you don't have good characters you don't have a story so i need to have characters i need to have some epic and i need to have enough sources there has to be enough material because sometimes i run into great stories but i'm like everything that has ever been written about this stuff i can tell in 10 minutes i don't have a story i can build an episode on this Mm -hmm. you know are there any stories that stand out as some of your favorites you know most of the stuff i've done so far have enjoyed a ton for different reasons you know whether it's because the person i like a lot whether because the story is completely like one i've been done recently i did this series on john of arc and it's such a completely batshit crazy story because it's like you are a 17 year old girl peasant illiterate in france at that time and you say i'm gonna lead an army it's like get the fuck out of here you know what are you (laughs) the odds of that happening are literally 0.000001 and somehow it happens anyway and not only it happens there's a lot of sources to back it up it's not like the kind of historical meet where like yeah maybe maybe not so that one is fun just for that reason but you know any yeah most of the stuff i've done so far i've had a blast doing they are all topics where i was like oh i can't wait to get into this is there any that if someone's listening to you for the first time you would recommend they start with um well right now there's one issue with history on fire is that it switched from being like any podcast freely available on itunes and everywhere else now we switched to a subscription service so most of the episodes are not going to be available which makes me now think what are the ones that are what we did per contract was to have leave like eight episodes out there for everybody on itunes on all the regular um, platforms and the other ones are going through the subscription service and then the new ones go through actually the new ones i'm gonna do two episodes a year are gonna be free and the other ones are gonna be the subscription service so i don't remember which ones are the one that are freely available i'm sure there's a series on theodore roosevelt i'm sure there's a series on spartacus and the slave rebellions in ancient rome i don't remember which one are the other ones well sounds like um whatever you will leave up will answer Paul's question, right? Basically, these are the best introduction ones to get into it. So whatever you have on there, you're already carefully curating 
And I think what I'll do is, if I remember correctly, the agreement was that we can rotate them. So Mm -hmm. every few months, some of the ones that are currently there, I'm going to retire and I'm going to bring out some of the other archives because there are, I'm sure there are things in the archives that I would be like, oh man, you have to listen to this one. This is the, you know, so I'm sure there's going to be some rotation there. Well, this is the interesting thing that's happening and even the popularity of History on Fire and even like YouTube channels that cover history or other topics. Uh, we were talking about earlier academia and even the term public intellectual, which is coming back again, maybe in a kind of a smarmy, uh, annoying way. But people, even when they're done with school, still want to learn stuff. And I think that's the space where, especially now, podcasts are starting to fill that void. And so I think that's why uh, companies like yours, the one you're talking about, Luminary, and other ones are popping up because they know that there is an interest in that and people do want to keep learning stuff. And podcasting is one of the best ways for people to learn stuff because we're all working a lot. And maybe the only time we could think about anything else other than work and learn something interesting is maybe on our way to work or on the subway, in our cars, on a trip. Totally. Problem is podcasting is the far west right now. Like there's no logic or lore, and it's like everything. There is no model that successfully works for most people. You know, there are probably zero point five percent of podcasts that make bank and they are doing great, and the current system works for them perfect. And rightfully so. You know, they have managed to acquire such a large audience that they can do whatever they want. Like no company could throw them enough money for them to be worth to make the switch. For most other podcasts, it's a different story because to actually keep podcasting, I mean, it's different if you're doing it as a hobby and you're just doing podcasting like, okay, let's just, um, I'll do it in my free time because it's fun and it's a hobby, but you know, you have your nine to five and you do that and you're not even thinking about monetizing. Well, that's different. That's fine. But if you are thinking, and I think that's for me, that's the difference. Like Drunken Taoist, I can do it as a hobby because it doesn't require me that much preparation. History on Fire, the number of hours that go into preparing an episode is so insane. We are talking about well over 100 hours per episode, or sometimes even twice as much, that it's a full-time job. You know, yeah. you cannot do it as, a, oh, in my free time, by the way. So unfortunately, the reality is it needs to pay. Otherwise, there's no way I can dedicate that much time. It's like, yeah, oh, sure, I can do it and release one episode a year yeah. if I'm doing it in my free time like that, yeah. you know? Otherwise, it needs to, I need to cut other things that, you know, maybe I'll teach less classes so that I can do more history on fire. But But in that case, then it needs to start paying up. And the problem with the monetizing podcasting is that there really is no satisfactory model because no. they're so relying on listener donations. It's kind of like relying on Santa Claus. It's like, you know, there is a, there are people who are sweet and nice and support what they listen to, but realistically, they are less than 1% of your audience. Yeah. Then you got the ads, but yeah. the ads, they come with their own problems. First, because there's stuff that you don't want to do ads for. And then, but then you're like, oh, but I need the money. But then you don't want to cross that line. Or they are all ads that you feel good with. But in order to make it pay, you need a bunch of them. Yeah. And listeners are like, screw that. I had to scroll through eight minutes of ads. Fuck <laughs> you. What's your problem? And it's like, okay, can you support on Patreon? 
No, Patreon is an evil company that suppresses free speech. Okay, can you send through PayPal? I don't have a PayPal account. It's, it's like, what do you want me to do? It's like, <laughs> come on, man. It's like, so that's part of why this Luminary thing was like, let's see, you know, because right now nobody knows, right? Nobody knows what's going to work in terms of other than the 0.5% of podcast in the other ones. How can they, if you have acquired a big enough audience, but not quite superstardom level, how can you make sure to keep it viable? It's an open question right now. There are experiments being done, and you know, Luminar is one of them. Mm-hmm. Will it work? Maybe yeah. we'll find out. <laughs> you know, there's and if that if by any chance that doesn't work, then what else would work? Because the current system doesn't work for long term. Uh, sust- the ones that you have again. It's different if you're doing podcasts that are all uh, free chat, a hobby. But if you're doing the ones where you have to invest time and energy, uh, yeah, the current system is not working that great. So part of your popularity isn't just about that you're covering history, right? Like you are somebody that people enjoy the way you teach them things. And probably your students can vouch for that also. And the need or the want of wanting to continue learning even outside of school People, a lot of times, talk about they don't like school. Mm -hmm. But school is a different animal from learning. A lot of people might not like school, but they still want to learn. Sure. And so a lot of times, topics you cover might be something they've never heard about. Like Joan of Arc, maybe they just heard about it in movies, but they didn't really know much about it. And so I wanted to bring you on because there's a big gap in our knowledge in the United States of America about Native American or Native Indian history, because it's almost like, imagine uh, you're an alien and you just uh, came on this different planet that had indigenous alien life form. And now you've taken it over or avatar. Yeah. (laughs) And you know nothing about what was there previously. That's kind of what it's like right now. Yeah. But the first question I want to ask about that is because you were born in Italy, right? If people can't tell from your accent. No, what accent? (laughs) When did you come here? Uh, 1992. I was 18 years old. So how did somebody born and mostly raised uh, up until early adulthood in Italy get interested in Native American? Or actually, what is the preferred term? There is no single. Depends. Okay. People use Native American, American Indian, Indigenous people, First Nations. It's all over the place. So it's kind of, it's a made up term anyway, because it's like everybody would identify for which tribe they were from. Yeah. There was no collective consciousness of being part of this larger thing. So it's like, as long as we understand that it's a generalization, we can use any of them pretty much. So then that's my question is, how did a guy from Italy get an interest in Native American history? And you specialize in that. How did that happen? You know, honestly, I don't know. Because the thing (laughs) is, it it goes so far back that I don't even remember. It's probably like I started being, and I don't know how it happened. You know, did I see a comic book? Did I see, because it's probably since when I was like two years old. So before I actually have memories that I remember they were telling me, oh, you'd always play with native stuff. You'd always look at drawing. For whatever reason, that caught my eye at an age that's long before stuff that I can actually consciously remember. How did that happen? Why? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I just don't know. it Because uh, again, all my memories are from when that's already part of my life. Oh. They are not from when it started. Uh, I do find it interesting though, because it's uh, when you look at things like uh, US versus places like Italy, 
because there's not the same history. Like in US, there's kind of like this guilty vibe about the past and about the fact that you need to deal with the fact that, yes, it was very ugly history of conquest and all the crap that happened. Lots of people don't want to deal with it. Um, they don't really want to look at that story. They press the hell out of them or it makes them feel guilty or it makes them feel angry or so. Lots of people just don't want to touch it. That's what I was going to say. A lot of times you go to a museum, you see folk art or on TV, you see some PBS special about Native American history and you want to avoid it because, yeah, to your point, maybe that makes you feel bad. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, I don't think because it's seen as a personal thing, it's seen as something that happened out there to other people, both both actors, both the natives and the person coming in and colonizing, they are not seen as the same as you in that nation. So it's there's more some random interest in the topic that's not affected by um, by the personal dynamics that come in uh, in US. So, but yeah, it's hard because I notice like anytime talking about native stuff in US, it falls always in this either it turns into this white guilt kind of thing or is a defensiveness against this white guilt. And it's like, that serves no purpose for anybody one way or the other. You know, it's like, how about we just look at it for what it is and not project our own bullshit on it? Because uh, that's the other thing that I don't understand is like, look, nobody's making about it you personally today. Nobody's telling you that you are a bad person because you share the same skin color, the same nationality with somebody who did a horrible thing 100 or 200 years ago. At the same time, it's probably good to understand why things are the way they are now, are affected by that. Again, it's not your personal responsibility, but the dynamics led to this in the present. So, you know, let's just do that. That that would be simple in theory, but of course people got emotionally wrapped up, which is one reason why, for example, when talking about, um, I was talking with people in the film industry about kind of historical ideas and movies and these, and nobody wants to touch American Indian stuff. They just are like, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Can you give us something European, Renaissance yeah, or yeah. something? It's like, they don't want to touch it. This is why we could talk about it so openly. We have a guy born and raised in Italy and you got two Korean guys. We don't have any guilt here. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I don't understand the guilt thing. I, I think it's because I don't understand nationalism. I don't understand patriotism. I don't understand identifying. To me, it's like, I don't, I, you know what I identify with? Just about the limits of my body. That's as far as how my identification goes. You know, I can go to, to me, the idea of group identity itself I don't fully get it because I don't take responsibility for the stuff that somebody else does. Like, because they are from the same nation, the fuck do I care? There's Within my nation, there's everything and the opposite. There are amazing human beings and horrible human beings. Why would I even build an identity on that? Even something like an ethnic group, it's way too big. Too many people with amazing values and horrible values. And the only thing, I mean, one other than a few cultural characteristics, the main thing you have in common is the fact that other people have typecasted you and treated you like shit because they think, oh, you guys are all the same. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, well, okay, now we have a common experience of discrimination. So yeah, we have something in common. But when you look at it at the individual value, Single individuals are often so damn different from one another that this idea that within that one group, you share values that you cannot share with somebody from across the world or across the border, to me, that's nuts. 
And that's why, to me, I like all of these things, like this idea. Somebody talks shit about white people. I'm like, the fuck do I care? I'm not <laughs> identifying as a white guy number million seven hundred or whatever. It's like, yeah, that is a shitty thing that you're talking about. It's bad. So what? I mean, is is not talk about me? Then we have something to talk about. I'll yeah. take ownership for that. I'll take responsibility for that. Talk about random, you know, like both taking pride in or feeling ashamed of something that people from your nation did. People are like, oh, you're from Italy. You have all this great history to be proud of. I'm like, I didn't fucking do it. I wasn't Leonardo painting that. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's like good for him, good guy, but that's not me, you know? So I'm, I don't really have that group identity, which is something that 99 for most people, 99% of people have. So it must be something really just lacking in the way I'm built, but it doesn't make sense to me. But it does make sense to help you as a historian, it seems like, because it's not like a personal identity, but identifying groups in a historical context is like kind of a shorthand. Of like we're talking about this certain period, yeah. but we take this historical context of kind of shorthand and we think that's how we should yeah. identify our lives and who we are as individuals. That's when it's kind of like we were making more of a historical analogy or a, a way to think about it to make it make sense to you. But this is not the way you should think about yourself. Yeah, it's like to me, you know, it's natural to you run from somebody from your same nation or ethnic group in a place that's not that nation. Then you get, oh, we have something in common. But like, then you stop to think about it. It's like I ran into some guy from Italy out here. And, you know, that initial, oh, you're from Italy. I'm from Italy. Cool. We have something in common. It's like, yeah, what do we have in common? We both like pasta. That's our deep bond that makes us one and the same. Get the fuck out. You know, it's like, yeah, that's great. We probably watched the same cartoons growing up and you understand my funny accent. That doesn't make us best friends. You know what I mean? That's such a basic level of stuff that we share that doesn't really tell me if we're going to get along or not. Yeah. It's just too skin deep. It's not any more than that. I have a good example about that living as a Korean American in LA where there's a lot of Korean Americans where other Koreans will say, oh, you know, because all us Koreans, we're all Christians. And it's like, all of us East Asians are a Western religion. Right. Right. That's, that doesn't even that doesn't even make sense. So even the thing that we think identifies us as an ethnic group isn't even our actual ethnic identity. A lot of them are just misrepresentations like that one. So a lot of times the way we categorize isn't even correct in a historical context or even a cultural context. So a lot of these things are wrong. You know, I did a series on History on Fire about Jack Johnson, not as in modern musician, as in uh, first uh, black guy to win the heavyweight title in boxing. And beside the fact that he's such a badass and he's just an awesome character, but one thing I dug about him is exactly this concept, is this concept of individuality with him, where he was like, obviously, he's living in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where Jim Crow is all over the place, where people get lynched if you don't turn aside when a white guy walks down the street, when racism and the way you get treated is all based on group identity, you know? And yet, not only Johnson defied that, which is great, but also he defied also the expectation within the black community of him fitting a certain model. You know, his approach was like, look, screw the white guys who want to put me in a box and not let me fight for the title because I'm black or not let me date white women if I want to or let me date whoever the hell I want, you know, screw them. 
but also screw you as in black community trying to put me in a box of like oh because now i'm your role model i'm supposed to doing this and this and i can only date a black woman or i can only cater to your expectation of what uh, good you know we need to give a good image. we don't need to do shit i'm my own man i'm doing my own thing i'm not your representative i don't want to be the white guy slaves i don't want to be your puppet either i want to be me you know and it's funny to see that because it's so often we build ourselves in relations to our enemies you know if you have as you rightfully would have in the early 1900s you're a black guy dealing with that level of racism naturally you're going to want to band with other black people because you share that same experience and and jack johnson does it a tiny bit but then he's like look let's be real about it i don't like you because you're black i like you for the your, you as a human being same as with people from so don't box me in anyway so he doesn't let one group box him in but he doesn't let who theoretically should be his natural allies box him in either and I like that idea, you know, I dig that concept of just, you know, you are you, a person, and you happen to share things with some people, share very different things with other people, and that's what you go by. It's almost uh, too forward thinking in a way, right? Ultimately, we all want to be like this, uh, just human beings, right? Judged for individual characteristics, but in a way... We might need allies and to kind of fight for stuff in the meantime, in transition to get to that kind of postmodern uh, civilization where like skin color group doesn't matter or shouldn't matter. If it matters to you, that's cool, but it shouldn't matter. And uh, I think that's the other thing that people have a hard time understanding is we're not there yet. And the path to the getting there is kind of complicated. You're totally right. And that's the other thing the way, why I say I'm a pain in the ass and like, always have an issue no matter which who i'm hanging out with that way because the people who will argue some of the very things i just said will often do it on the basis of oh come on get over it there is no color there is no race i see no colors which sounds sweet in theory but what it means in reality is often this ethic of just pull yourself up by your bootstraps everybody's the same and it's like yeah no motherfucker not everybody's the same not everybody start from the same spot so while I agree that ultimately individuality counts more than groups, you should also have an understanding of some social conditions that are based on groups and race yeah. and things like that that do affect individuals. And I think the problem is most people like, and this is one of the themes I run into in everything, history on fire, drunk and Tao is just my way of looking at it. Most people are locked into dualistic mentality where if it's not A, then it must be B. If individuality is the true answer, then it means that everything about group identity, we should all forget about it and none of that is real. Or they flip and it's all about society and the big picture and the individual is nothing. And it's like, the Taoist answer to most stuff is both. Yeah. In different percentages and those percentages change over time and they are contextual. But it's rarely that black and white. It's rarely that uh, good guys, bad guys, or one smart approach and one completely stupid. Which, to go to one of the points that usually I'm around, it doesn't mean centrism either. It doesn't mean, you know, then I'm going to go between these two extremes, look for the middle, and that's the right path. No, yeah. that would be too easy. That's yeah. not it either. Because that doesn't require critical thinking either. <laughs> nope. That's uh, being lazy again, because yeah. it's like, oh, every time the solution is right in the middle. No. 
the solution is anywhere on that spectrum between zero and a hundred, and each situation is different. And sometimes it's going to be ninety-nine and one. Yeah. Sometimes it's zero and a hundred. Most of the time it's somewhere in between, but it's not fifty-fifty every time. And I think it boils down to laziness. People like to have, uh, as much as we say we don't, most people like dogmas because it's safe. You can always fall back on that and apply to every context, every situation. This is the answer. That's because you can't think on your feet. And so you're relying on this lazy, oh, that that recipe works most of the time, so I'm sure it's going to work everywhere. And it's like, no, that's not how life works. There is this kind of weird thing, right, where if you think you're a centrist, that you must automatically be the most ethical and most uh, intelligent, right? right? But really, it's the laziest because you can have an opinion and argue about anything that you know nothing about. What are you saying? Okay, what are you saying? Okay, my opinion is split the difference. Right, it's exactly. right in the middle. <laughs> I don't need to know anything about this. I don't need to read any books. Right. The middle of what you guys are saying must be the right answer. Yeah. Do we kill this person? Do we not? Just cut him in half. That has to be the right answer. Right. No, exactly. And that's where it becomes laziness. You know, any idea, I think that's why, you know, first line of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that can be explained is not the real thing, right? Is that notion that any idea, if you take it too dogmatically, turns into a bad idea, no matter how good it is when you start. If you try to apply it in every, it's kind of like, you know, fighting. If you say it's all about the jab. Well, yeah, the jab is important, but there are a couple of other aspects of the game that are, you know, is, and you need all those tools there. And you apply the right one in the right context. And in a different context, is a different tool that you need and a different balance that you need. But they require too much work. Uh, it requires too much thinking on your feet. It requires too much sensitivity. And all of the things are things that are too hard for most people. And so it's so much easier to rely on like some recipe that always the same, that's unchanging, doesn't matter what you're going to put in front of me. I'm going to reply with the same standard answer all the time. That's just dogma in action. There's no, there's no person there who's making a choice. Yeah, it doesn't make sense if you apply even the smallest amount of critical thinking to an example. So if you say, you should never lie. It's like, never? You should never steal. Never. And if you take Sam's approach of splitting the difference doesn't make sense either because if one group says we need to exterminate an entire race and the other is like you shouldn't do any you can't say like why don't you just kill half of them yeah, yeah like thanos well, you can't go wrong with that it's like just kill half we yeah. should be okay it's yeah. like population control like that doesn't make sense either no i think absolutely it's like there's um there aren't too many absolutes in general i would almost be tempted to say there are no absolutes except when there are, you know, there are a couple of <laughs> cases where I'm like, okay, you know, there is no self-defense rape. You know what I mean? It's like rape, yeah, bad across the board, 100% of cases. I don't see the lone exception. But most things, that's why those laws are so funny where you have, you shall not kill. Well, except in self-defense, except in war, except. Yeah. And it's like, if you're going to make all these exceptions, don't you shall not anything because <laughs> you're not really telling it's not written in stone. It's not that black and white. It's contextual. Very, very few things are not contextual. And yeah, I think it's things like child abuse, rape, stuff like that. It's like, okay, those are bad. No matter what, 110% of cases. Most other stuff in life uh, depends. Yeah, even the the idea that there are no absolutes 
is an absolute, exactly. right? Exactly. So that's why he has That's to kinda... why he's like, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> They're almost are no absolutes. Yeah. Actually, to your earlier point about MMA, when we do fight breakdowns and fight studies, actually, where we really try to study the fights, that is something that uh, we're moving away from. But a lot of the earlier, you said there's three stages of kind of like thinking about stuff, right? The 2.0 people, the second stage people, they're like, okay, we figured it out. Back in the day, people just thought you were a striker or you just did crazy jiu-jitsu and you submitted everybody. No, no, no. Now we figured it out and there's no more evolution after this, which is you're striking and then you switch to wrestling and ground fighting. And then when you're standing up, you go back to striking. You take turns doing one or the other. Let's train striking 50% and let's train grappling 50%. And it's like, no, because the really good fighters They'll do striking, clinching, grappling all at once in varying percentages, like you said. It's about the percentages, right? And so they're mixing all of that at once. So even in their stance, they're striking sometimes, like you'll see this with uh, Daniel Cormier or uh, Habib, where they're fighting almost from this kind of weird judo or wrestling stance because they want to be able to strike while they could also wrestle if they need to. They're doing it all at once. They're not taking turns. And that's the kind of mistake that people make. It's kind of like what you said. It's almost a form of laziness where you think you found the one boilerplate recipe that works in all situations. And it's not going to be always 50-50. And it's not always going to be you take turns doing one or the other, which is still binary. <laughs> Sometimes you got to do all of it in varying percentages at once. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think, something like fighting is very... If you take it from a philosophical standpoint, it's a perfect representation of what we're talking about because it's constantly changing you know and any one move that you do is not necessarily right or wrong i mean yeah there are some things that are flat out wrong you know you're not gonna do there's some kind of any bullshit type of thing where you look at like some moves that are like that's never gonna work in any case ever that's just a dumb way of moving the human body but most things are gonna work in a context and they're not gonna work 0.3% 0.3% 0.3 seconds later you know it's like that jab work right there and you waited half a second wouldn't have worked does it mean that the jab doesn't work or that it always work yeah. depends on the moment it depends yeah. on what the other guy is doing it depends on and so but i think the problem is because it when we say it depends on there are so many factors at play they require you to have um, ultimately goes back to being awake you know, to paying attention to what's going on around you, to be able to, in conversation, to be able to read the room, to read where somebody else is coming from. Whereas it's so much easier to have your talking points ready-made that you're going to spit out at anybody you meet. And it's like, yeah, that may not really be the thing that helps that person in front of you right now. You may have to take a co- But in order to figure it out, you need to be able to read them. And that's happened live. It happens on the spot. It doesn't happen in, in an abstract universe of every single time people will respond to this message. It's not how it works. It's like, well, you have you have kids now. It's like not all kids respond to the same inputs. You know, yeah. some kids need more structure. Some kids you need to let them go. Some kids, it's not right or wrong. Is learn what you have in front of you and learn what works for that person. A lot of that black and white thinking, I think, also comes from like not thinking through your idea, mm-hmm. right? You just thought of it to a certain point. Even if you don't run into something that's a teachable moment that teaches you something, if you just thought through it, 
like you were talking about intellectual laziness, just sat down and just let me think through this idea all the way to the end. And there is no end, but go as far as you got 30 minutes, think through it for 30 minutes. And a lot of people don't. So a lot of times they hit objections right away from somebody else who like thought of something you didn't. And that's the choice then. Are they forcing you to like think through it? Or will you ignore what they just said and just keep sticking to your bullet points? And that's when you are wrong, like where you should have thought it through more because you screwed up and you said something. And that you're right. Most people are not going to even address that when they are wrong and they're going to stick to their guns because they have ego, because whatever. But to me, it's even interesting when you are 100% right. It's like, yeah, you are right in that discussion. The other person is making some bullshit points and they are completely off. How am I going to approach it in a way that actually creates a good outcome here? Because I think where I definitely am, I think most people are guilty of the fact that sometimes being we're addicted to being right. Mm. And when you are right, then it's like, well, then if you let me show you how right I am, and if you can't see it, then you're just a dumb fuck. And it's like, sure, that person is taking a position and ideas that are flat out toxic and horrendous, but is my way of communicating it to this person really the best I can do here? Is that the great outcome that I'm trying to achieve to tell everybody how right I am? Okay, pat on the back. Good job. You're right. So what? You haven't really helped anybody. You haven't changed anybody's mind in a good way. You haven't really, you just yelled at somebody and, and totally guilty of that, right? I've seen some of my interactions where I'm like, Yeah, I still think I was right, but that did not help anyone. That just made the shitty situation shittier. And okay, so what? My being right, assuming that I am, but my being right didn't really serve me or anybody else. So, but of course, we have only so much time and energy. So sometimes you run into people that you're just, you just want to say, fuck you, you are (laughs) stupid. Let's leave it at that, you know? It's not the most constructive approach in the world. It clearly doesn't. It, ma- it makes you feel good because you vent and you get to yell. But then, you know, you're the grumpy old man telling kids to get off your lawn. It doesn't really help. Yeah, there's two points to that. Like the first point you said about time, like let's say <laughs> you got to go to a meeting or you got to go somewhere You got and somebody brings up something and they're wrong about it. And you look at the clock and you got five minutes. You're like, there's no way we're going to get anywhere in five minutes. Just either got to be like, just shut up or just like, okay, whatever, man. And just got to leave. So the time constraint, or maybe you just don't even have the mental energy to deal with it sometimes. But the other thing that you were touching upon is that wanting to feel right. I often joke that sometimes people would rather be right and die than be wrong and live. Like you see it all the time in traffic where it's like, okay, yeah, you had the right away, but you're going to die. Right. Maybe, you know, you should have approached this differently so that you didn't have that near fatal accident. Yes, yes, you are right. So after you're dead, that person will be arrested. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) but but maybe uh, you should have done something differently and uh, not be right in the situation just so you could have survived this outcome. Like you had the right away, but maybe you should have given that up just so you don't die. You know what I mean? Well, and I think part of the problem is also stuff like social media does not help in that regard because it's not a conversation where you're sitting at dinner and you can really take your time. You're not going anywhere for two hours. You're in front of each other. You're going to try to find ways to build a connection. You are on sound bites. You write three lines back and forth. That's not particularly conducive to having a good communication there, you know, where you can... 
it does become a you're right, I'm right, no, fuck you, I'm the one who's right. It, it's very hard to have a conversation that goes, uh, that allow for vulnerability, allow for questions to be asked, allow for not just trying to smash your point across. It's really difficult to do on social media, which is why sometimes, you know, I used to, I think for years and years on Facebook, Twitter stuff, I never block anybody, right? I was just like, ah, come on, you can have a conversation with anybody. Now I'm just like, nope. You know, if you are mildly unpleasant, I'm just like out, done. I don't want to deal with because I don't have the time. You know, it's like it's different if it's one human being in front of you. Okay, we have the time, we can play. But when there's so much every day with random people you don't know, you know, you got to pick your battles where what are the odds that this conversation is going to lead to anything remotely good? Because most of them are not going to. You you know, you're going to go in, you're going to spend hours going back and forth. And maybe you move the needle like three millimeters. And it's like, yeah, that was not worth my time and energy. Yeah, life's too short. Have you heard the term shit posting? Yeah, yeah. So we use it, we think of it as a derogatory thing, but actually it's just the nature of not even most uh, internet engagement. Shit posting in real life is just called small talk. Mm-hmm. Because shit posting is basically the amount of effort you're willing to put into a post while you're shitting, right? You're shitting, you're like busy, I could post something real quick on here, like I'll just write a two word, whatever, like very, very low effort, shit posting, right? And a lot of human conversations can be like that, but also online, a lot of times that is, maybe a lot of times people are posting while they're taking a shit, because everybody takes their phone uh, to the toilet, right? So my point is, is then sometimes like if you block somebody, right, because life's too short, it's not worth it. Some other people will come on and say, why didn't you try to engage with them? Blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, you, you got you to gotta just talk to people. And it's like, no, because you might put in a lot of effort, Daniele, and you might start looking up stuff in Wikipedia, do all this effort. But there's no guarantee that the other person will put in an equal amount of effort. And if anything, because I am a betting man, I will say they will most likely put in very low effort. And if it's like low effort and high effort, it's not going to go anywhere. And that's why like a lot of times we probably imagine like the only way this conversation is going to go anywhere is I would have to lock them in a room so they can't leave. Exactly. And then force them to put in effort. And if you are in the same room, you're going to read their vibe, you're going to read their body language, you're going to read their energy, and you're going to know whether that's they are willing to have a conversation or not. You're going to understand whether there's some chance of this going anywhere or not. In Behind the screen, you can't. No. And you just get... And so the potential for miscommunication there is off the roof, and the odds of things going in a particularly positive direction are really yeah. small. So... But yeah, social media is so damn addictive. It's it's annoying. <laughs> it's because uh, sometimes you know you also meet really good people that way. You have interactions that are really pleasant. So it's not just oh, it's all terrible. In that case, just yeah. close your accounts and be done. It's a weird mixed bag. And learning how to be able to take the good without the crap is it's a difficult art. I think they do design it in a way to be bad because that makes them more addictive. Like with Facebook Messenger, or a lot of these messenger apps, they actually had to code it in. So that now you can see if somebody's actually read your post. Right. I sent you a message, Danelli. Now it tells me that you read it. Like Snapchat, a lot of these other apps tell you these things. That wasn't automatic. Somebody had to put effort to make it do something so shitty that triggers people. Why would they program that? Because obviously pissing people off or annoying them or making them anxious or neurotic gets people to use things more. 
So all that stuff where social media is not like a neutral tool and it could be used in a good way or a bad way. Actually, I think they are purposely designing it to be used in a bad way because it makes you use it more. Like Apple just got caught for like deleting apps that make you stop using the iPhone more, right? Yeah. So they're purposely trying to gear things so that you are more annoyed and you are more addicted to it. Which is funny because I was talking with, um, I had a conversation with Chris Ryan. I don't know if you guys are familiar, the author of Sex at Dawn. He's a good writer. He has a podcast called Tangentially Speaking. And we are talking and he was telling me this story about some lady he met from Malibu, super wealthy family and lots of issues, right? A lot of like self-harm, cutting herself and uh, antidepressants and this and that. And all these things were like, okay, from the outside, this looks like somebody who's winning the game. But then you look at it and it's like, this is a person who's miserable. And when he was talking to her, he was asking about other people in that social circles. And what she was saying was like, yeah, pretty much everybody's in my boat. And so that kind of makes the whole... Uh, sneakiness of some of the stuff that you are describing, right? People who are manipulating a system for their own advantage. Most of the time, they do it from such a narrow, okay, I'm going to make the most money I can while I can, while at the same time, they are both creating a world around them as well as in their own personal life that's absolutely miserable. So that in theory, it sounds like some James Bond evil villain thing was a plan to take over the world. But even when they do, they end up with misery, not just for everybody else, because at least you are, you know, they are the bad tyrant who they get what they want and they screw everyone else over. No, you also screw yourself over in the process and you are the first victim of yourself. Of course, it's a lot better to be the victim who sits on $200 million than the one who's starving. That's a given. But you're only mild, you know, in that sense is while you're creating all these you're robbing left and right by taking advantage of people around you. You're also making yourself not any happier than you were before. You just get to see more zeros in the bank and that makes you feel good about yourself. And I think the way I described it was now you can afford uh, designer anti-depression meds versus the generic brand. You know, it's like, but that's the difference. It's not that really you are winning, like winning the game, you're still fucking up, you know? And so it's funny because you, sometimes we think of like the ultimate conspiracy thing is imagining these guys who are pulling all the strings and manipulating it so that they get what they want while screwing everyone else over. And it's partially true, except that they are not really making themselves happy in any meaningful yeah. way. They are also their own victims while they victimize everyone else. Yeah, even the uh, ones who pull the string are not satisfied. Nobody's satisfied. Exactly. And so it's like, well, then what are we doing it for? You know, it's like, I understand somebody who's screwing everyone else over because they get happy. But if you are not even getting happy, why are, are there other forces at play? Or is there some like machine that's making you do this stuff? Because it's not benefiting you really in the great scheme of things. And it's making everyone else miserable. So why is it happening anyway? Is it just plain human stupidity, which is a high likelihood? I think it's just uh, the way a lot of us do things, right? Like we drove home. I don't remember how I got home, right? I go to school, you know, at this time and uh, I always show up five minutes late. It's just my pattern. Or I always drink coffee at this time. I make it the same way. We do a lot of things on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a lot of the bad things that people do is also just on autopilot. And because you're living so much of it on autopilot, 
You're not even thinking about, is this really making me happier or not? Right. You don't even know why you're hurting people. You're just hurting people and uh, screwing people over because that's just what you do. No, I think you're absolutely right. Because learning how to live a good, healthy, happy life is not an easy thing. They don't teach you that in school. They Most people, they are born in families where their family, nobody knows how to do it for themselves. They are not going to teach you. Your friends are just as fucked up as you are. And so it's like, and then, you know, there's going to be the hackster, let me show you how to be happy in 12 steps. And it's like, you know, there's a market for that, of course, because it's, because it's lacking. But the real thing, the real, like, how do we actually build a happy, satisfied, healthy life? That should be priority number one. They don't know where to look because yeah. so few people have any idea where to start. And most of the time it's just the ones who say that they have an idea is bad marketing and stuff they want to sell you, basically. Because you got to work it out yourself. And we want other people to have it already pre-worked out, made it a template, and then I'm going to take your template and it's going to work for me. And it goes back to the dogma, right? Everybody should eat the same food, then you will be healthy. Everybody should spend X amount of hours doing meditation every day. Everybody, it's like, those are tools and some are better than others, but you know, you have to figure out out of all these tools, how to mix them together in a way that works for you. Yeah. To actually like live your life, not be on autopilot and just try to do the hard part of living, which is figuring stuff out on your own, having embarrassing life moments where you learn and just being there living. And I think we don't want to do that sometimes because it's hard. It's so yeah. much easier to say, look, meditate half hour a day and eat green food and do this. It's like, okay, I can do that. I can follow the recipe. And it's certainly better than eating crap and spending your time yelling in traffic, but still it's you can go through all those steps and still not really be that happy. Probably better than where you were before, but that, you know, putting a Band-Aid on it is not really fixing it per se. Because rules are idiot-proof, right? It's like, I don't need to think about anything. Here's the rules that I follow. Done. <laughs> I think I had a line in, I did this series on Taoism of lectures. I think a line that I used in there was uh, the Taoist idea that rules are for people who are too stupid to live without them. Which is basically where, you know, if you're really that clueless and yeah, you probably rules keep you from screwing up too bad. But if you actually are beginning to get it, then you can move beyond the rules because you don't need the rules to keep you in check every step of the way. You have kind of a more innate wisdom that you can apply it in the right context. You don't need to go with the dogma. I think that's why uh, out of all the kind of religions out there and philosophies and way to kind of direct your life. I think that's why Taoism has been the least popular because it's the most fluid and granular and context-based and it's not black and white. It's not just about being in the middle. It's popular in people misuse the term or you take a quote and you want to turn that quote, which is about fluidity and not knowing anything into an absolute inspirational statement. Yes, then in that way it's used a lot, but actual as a way to direct your life. It's not very popular. People would rather go with things that are much more clearly defined. And lately, like a lot of people are turning to stoicism, which has like clear rules, like do this, do that. A stoic does. What would a stoic do, right? What would Jesus do? What would Buddha do? Like, whereas in Taoism, it doesn't have any of that. What would you do? And that depends. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. The Taoist thing that way is like, oh, you want to learn our stuff? Nah, 
it's too messy for you. You're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Go to Confucianism. They'll give yeah. you simple rules. They'll keep you from screwing up too bad. It's better for you. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. worry about it. Because life is messy, and that's the thing that a Taoist, if there is a Taoist awakening moment that propels you towards that framework about understanding things, I think it is that, oh, life is just capricious and messy, and just it is what it is. And that doesn't even mean it's good or bad. Right. It just is what it is. No, that's really messy. And I don't think people like that. People want simple solutions. Of course. And when you boil it down, the more you have to think about things, the less you want to do them. And when you put something like putting together furniture, the more steps something comes with like, can you do you have a simpler one that I could just do it in an hour or so? And why wouldn't people take that approach with life? Well, that's why it's so popular, the Ten Commandments, X number of rules for life, uh, take the seven steps to becoming a life. It's like everybody wants that very linear, simple, pro- oh, if I only jump through these hoops, then I'm going to get what I need. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how, which is why school is hard, because, you know, how do you grade somebody you can grade objectively whether somebody knows their stuff or not factually. But does that mean that you are act- even stuff like critical thinking gets messy because how accept- there's a very subjective element that comes into play on whether some of it actually works well or whether you are using evidence in a crappy way. It's very easy to grade somebody's knowledge. It's very hard to grade somebody's wisdom. Or rather, it's not hard. You know, We can do it, but it's there's a strong subjective element to it, whereas old school is based on being purely objective on you're supposed to do things that can be anybody else can come in and say, of course, you gave this grade for that reason because that person has missed three multiple choice. That's easy. But to really teach people, which ultimately deals with wisdom, not just knowledge, not an easy game at all. And I think what's scary, at least for me, is when people follow all these rules and they succeed, and then they say, well, what's next? And I tend to see it in athletes after they win something, after they win a title or become a champion, and then they realize they're still not happy. Then they say, well, I did everything I was supposed to. What now? And there's no easy answer. So some turn to drugs, some turn to, I guess, other vices, and some just kill themselves because they say, well, where else is it going to go from here? Right. Isn't that trippy that you look at like being able to handle not just mild success, but pinnacle success, the rock star level. You made a gazillion dollars as an actor or as an athlete or as a businessman, and people flip out when they have success. That says something really interesting about the human mind, right? It could also be because we don't have practice with it. How are you going to prepare? People have defeats all the time. You lose all the time. You're late for class. You don't have a good grade. You don't win first place. It's okay because you're used to dealing with loss and failures. But success comes every once in a while and then you don't have enough practice with it. It's like that pro that comes into your gym once in a while. You're never going to get to that level or you're not going to be able to understand what it takes. But the few times you do and then you continue, it's like, I don't know what to do from here. Well, and the other thing is what you said, which is you may have uh, this idea that once you'll get there, then you'll be happy and you get there and you're not happy. And so you're like, now what? You know, my whole trajectory was built on work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. I will get to the goals and suddenly everything will click and things don't automatically click because you haven't learned along the way what is that makes you happy. 
and success and when suddenly you realize that success doesn't deliver it and success only delivered a designer antidepressants and not the <laughs> generic brand that you're like oh shit now what i don't know what to do with it. and on top of it now you have the spotlight on and everybody judging you expecting things from you and people flip all the time because people have it in their head that i'm gonna do all this and it's linear and then i'll be done mm-hmm. right i'm cured of unhappiness i'm yeah. done i'm cured and it's like there's no done because there's this concept in game theory finite games and infinite games an actual project that work. That's a finite game. Today, I was assigned this thing and then we have a deadline and then we finish by that date or a school presentation. Okay, I'm done here. But life technically is not infinite, but like it doesn't really end until you're dead, right? So you're 40 and you accomplish something. The game is not done. It's still an infinite game. It keeps going on. So that means then that your list of checklists and your ultimate satisfaction in life may have overlaps, but there are two different things. And just because you got to the final thing on your checklist doesn't mean you're done. Maybe you're done with your checklist, but this other thing, trying to be happy and satisfied, that's just something you're going to have to work on and grind at every day until you die. And then when you're dead, you're done. (laughs) Think about the archetype of all our stories, right? Is character start our story, conflict, drama, defeat the dragon, you finally succeed. And they lived happily ever after. And it's like, ow, just because you rem- you won the conflict yeah. doesn't really mean that you're going to, like, what exactly does happily ever after look like? Yeah. What does it mean on a day-to-day basis? Because so far you haven't shown me that. You've just shown me hero who defeats, cha- there's this major challenge and obstacle. And we assume that if we just remove that obstacle, then everything is going to click into place and you're going to be going to this natural state of happiness. And you realize that for most people, that's not natural at all. It's something that needs to be learned. And the traditional archetype doesn't give you that. Is yeah. uh, you defeat the dragon and then you'll marry the princess and live happily ever after. It's like, show me what that means. Show me day to day what happily ever Without showing, you're making exactly that statement of if you just go through all these, then you'll get there and you'll be there forever. And it's like, that's not how it works at all. I've had this conversation with people before where what makes a good story isn't a guideline for good mental health. Like that whole idea of you have all this conflict and then happy ending. You've already covered how the happy ending isn't so clear and isn't so automatic, right? But the other part is is that we think, oh, there's a lot of drama and conflict in my life. I must be doing it right. It's like, no, I want to live a mostly conflict-free kind of peaceful life. And we kind of think that we need to do all this stuff or the more dramatic I'm being, the more I'm chasing my passion, like my life is in chaos and it's so bad right now. That's good because then on the other side, we'll find happiness. And it's like, that is not a sign that you're doing things good. That's probably a sign that you're doing things bad as far as your mental health and equanimity and happiness goes. So that's, that's the other thing. It's like, what makes sense in an interesting story does not make for good happiness in your mind Sure. And I think some of that is just the existential conditions of life. There's enough conflict thrown at you, whether you want it or not, right? There's enough drama in life and crappy things that happen that you have to deal with. So that's where the conflict comes in. That when people are addicted to it and they build even more conflict than it needs to be, it's like, there's enough in life as it is. How about we stop right there? You know, the minimum amount that you need to deal with is, and yes, it will happen whether you like it or not. 
but don't go looking for it. Because the story makes you believe that you could exhaust it, right? I'm going to keep searching for it, get rid of all of it. I'm going to defeat all the conflict and then I'll be done. And it's like, no, it's endless. You could keep creating more conflict. You could keep creating more dragons. Absolutely. And you will happen. Regardless. I mean, it's not even an if, it's a guarantee because it's just, that's life, right? You're going to have your highs and lows. You're going to have great things that happen, bad things that happen. You're going to have, uh, there's no stopping that process. That's just going to happen regardless. So unless you figure out a way to be happy along the process, it's not going to happen because one day you turn the corner and suddenly everything clicks the way you want and that's not the way it works at all. So let's call this part two. Because I did a lot of setup at the beginning about uh, Native American history. Yeah, do I've never done the part two thing. So this is, I, I've always wondered, like, when did they decide what's part one and part two? Right. And maybe sometimes the conversation naturally like, leads to a stop <laughs> and you go into. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they do that after the fact. Maybe they didn't plan it ahead. Okay, we're going to decide to have a part one to this right. episode and a part two. And that's the thing, like going back to capricious and messy. That's kind of how life is. It doesn't go all in a linear way. And that doesn't mean it's random or useless either. Like we just talked about random, like trivial, annoying stuff. It's like, no, sometimes things happen in a messy, capricious way, but that's very valuable. And that is how like we think it happened very naturally for us to have this conversation that covered many topics because each thing we talked about touched on the last thing. Right. But now we're going to table this, go into where we left off at the very beginning, which was Italian guy, always had an interest in indigenous people. And then you specialized in your studies on Native American history. But then even within that specialty, you specialize again on Lakota history. Sure. So coming from American public education, and you went to private school, right? Correct. So we have both. We probably know nothing about Lakota history. I mean, in general, like, even when I teach courses in American Indian history and I ask people what they've been exposed to, you know, there's the occasionally person who in personal life has been exposed to something, but through educational system is like, Columbus arrived, shake hands with the Indians on the beach, they disappear off into the sunset, you bring them back out for Thanksgiving, oh, Turkey together, Puritans, great, okay, off they go again, maybe you throw in some sad trail of tears moment, boom, done, over. And it's like, what you know it's like it's barely a blimp on the red it just doesn't show up right it's just something that just not really discussed much at all and then sometime later there's casinos like how did that happen right right right. "Eh?" exactly it's very which is why i mean native people are one percent of the population of the united states so that's a really small ethnic minority i mean it's still millions of people but you know one percent is one percent is not that much so most people are not gonna have uh, personal experience with it most people don't read or schools don't cover it. So really the way most people will be exposed to it is through movies. And even then, movies has been probably 20 plus years that they don't really, like it was big in the 90s, you know, post Dancers with Wolves winning the Oscars. Then they, as Hollywood does, they would repeat the same movie like 52 <laughs> times in a, within a few years. And then it was done. By the late 90s, it was done. And since then, they haven't really touched on it much anymore. I mean, eventually it will happen again, but... Definitely not now. And so, yeah, the reality is most people have no clue about any of this stuff. And uh, So how did you focus on Lakota out of all the different native peoples? Mm, I don't want to overly romanticize it, but there is a moment there where, and keep in mind, I'm not 
particularly convincing, like, what do I know about afterlife or any of that? Or the concept of reincarnation never made the most sense to me because I'm like, what exactly? What is a soul? What the hell is this? If I don't have my memory, my body, my what are we talking about? Yeah. You know, but there are some things once in a while that I go, okay, that is kind of odd. Like, for example, every single time I would hear. Lakota language being spoken, even without knowing anything about it, I would just get deeply emotional. Like you would move me for no good reason, right? And so I was like, yeah, why am I into this stuff? What is this? And I don't have an answer. You know, I have no clue. And again, I don't want to build, you know, it sounds like that also become the lazy new age. Uh, I was the reincarnation of so-and-so in another life. Yeah, fuck off. Just get out of here already. You know, it's like, so no, I don't know. And no, I'm not theorizing that is it but for some reason that i can't quite qualify i've been very drawn to that i mean some of the stuff i can understand why there's an element of that lifestyle in many ways capture probably what an ideal human lifestyle is for most people because you have the freedom of hunters and gatherers you know the the fact that that's how we have been for 99% we've been alive as human beings is hunting and gathering living in small groups we are built for that kind of tight-knit community of face-to-face, you know. But the beautiful thing about tribes like the Lakota or the Cheyenne or the Plain tribes in the early 1800s was that you got horses. So you have all the advantages of a hunting and gathering lifestyle without some of its limitations, which is you're stuck in really small groups because you're nomadic, you live with, there's only so many resources you can tap into. Horses allow you to tap into way more resources. So your villages, rather than being 10 to 50 people, can now be in the hundreds. You can cover way more land. You can interact with... It's like hunting and gathering on steroids, where you have all the advantages with less of the limitations. And so that pattern, that... Like, I remember reading the story of this one Cheyenne guy who was, you know, by then he was old, he had got through the reservation system and he said you know yeah i appreciate the fact that now when i go to sleep i don't think that some enemy tribe is gonna attack me and cut my throat while i sleep there's something nice about that but and you could tell that when he goes into the but part he's really missing the old days and he said yes there was bullshit there was drama there was stuff i didn't like but there was something amazing about that degree of freedom that you have when you are your entire social structure that you're dependent on is the 300 people around you, people that you can have face-to-face conversation with every single one of them. You're, you're not really limited in too many ways other than conflict with other tribes. That's about the extent of it. You have access to, you live on horseback, you can take your teepees anywhere you want. You have There's something about that life, which is both for hunters and gatherers if they have horses or for pastoralists, you know, people who make their living from their flocks and they tend to be semi-nomadic along that. Most of those guys don't really want to trade with the... Like, they are attracted to the sedentary lifestyle because it has some advantages to it, but usually then they miss the old stuff. They feel like, yeah, but that life had something else that seemed to speak to the nature of human beings more than industrialized life, than most people who get to try it a little bit. They tend to fall in love with that life. So I can see how that particular period was one, and it's very short-lived, but it combines many things that 
human beings respond well to. Well, in Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, he talked about that, right? A lot of the American settlers converted over and joined the side of the native people in their fight, which isn't often talked about, but because they enjoyed that life more. Right. Yeah, and it makes sense. And it drove uh, Europeans crazy because it's like, wait, we are superior. We are civilized. Why is it that a bunch of our people are more than happy to go live among natives and most of those guys don't want to come to live among us? What does it say about the relative health of each culture? You know, There's a Benjamin Franklin quote where I think Younger uses it, where he says, uh, no European who has tasted savage life can afterwards bear to live in our settlements. That's telling you something right there about how appealing that kind of life was. And you're not even talking about comparing that kind of life to modern life that's even more lonely and more alienated. You're talking about 1600s, 1700s, where you know European life with way more community than it has today. And it still was very distant second best to what you get in native tribes for a lot of Europeans who get to experience it. Yeah, and it's that right there is telling you something about what are the elements that make human being click and feel at home and feel good with a certain lifestyle. And, you know, today we have a lot of great things technologically. We have material culture, way more luxuries than we ever had before. I mean, of course, not everybody, but, you know, on... And yet, the level of satisfaction hasn't necessarily gone up. If anything, you know, when you look at percentage of uh, how many people are on heavy antidepressants, how many people are struggling, how many people are lonely as hell in modern American life. Suicides? Suicide, very high. And he's like, wait, you are supposed to, you won the game. You got all the goods. You are happy. And he's like, no, that doesn't translate into happiness. And and there's something about that, those elements. You know, one thing that humans thrive on is community, is, is tribe, is small numbers of people that you spend lots of time with, that you click with, that connection to something is, that's when, when you lack that is when people have to make up fake communities and there's nationalism. And it's like, yeah, the nation is not a community. It's too big. It's not a fake. It needs to be face to face. It needs to be people and granted there's also bad things about small communities you know you end up in david koresh branch davidian <laughs> community it's a small face-to-face community it's not a good one okay so it's not that they are all great but definitely there's something that speaks to human beings on that level that we need that we crave um and that's just one aspect i'm sure we can come up with more but that's an important one right there that makes a huge difference you mentioned the plains tribes where would that be today in the U.S.? Great Plains is anything west of, like Minnesota is just about where the forest part ends. And then when it becomes kind of open plain, more flat grassland, which was, you know, buffalo land, you know, for herds of buffalo to roam through a little more flat little less packed with forest. So anywhere from South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, all that area, west to the Rocky Mountains. That's about the range. And you mentioned horses. Didn't the horses come from the European that explorers, really conquerors that came? Yeah, mainly uh, what happened in 1680, there was uh, the Spaniards had conquer uh, native tribes in the Southwest, referred to them as the Pueblos. These were tribes like the Hopi, the Zuni, some of these guys. 
1680, the Pueblos rebelled and they were very successful. They kicked out the Spaniards and they got their hands on thousands of Spanish horses that up until this point, the Spaniards have been kind of careful to try to keep to themselves. By the time the Spaniards came back to the Southwest and reconquered, those horses had been traded left and right. And by then they started spreading to a bunch of other tribes, starting this revolution in American Indian lifestyles as tribes on the plain got incorporated their horses as part of their culture. And it happened so quickly that by the 1800s, people are saying that's like some of the plain native riders were some of the best horsemen in the world. And this was something that had only existed for maybe a hundred years at most by that point. So it's very dramatic, but very quick change that happens. I've also read in history books, uh, I can't remember which ones, but the native peoples in what we now call the U.S., even though they hadn't yet run into any Europeans yet, the European diseases had already come for them. Totally. That makes a huge difference. And that's what makes colonization possible is without that, it would have been a different story. But that, you know, when you have uh, diseases that people had not been exposed to, so they kill anywhere from like 50 to 90% of a population. And on top of it, you have to deal with warfare and colonization. It's amazing that it actually took as long as it did for Europeans to conquer all of the Americas, because you'd figure that with such a huge biological advantage, it would be even a faster process. But yes, in many cases, the diseases traveled faster than, uh, than the actual face-to-face encounter. So they were passed from one European to some natives, from some natives to other natives. And you know, it kind of paved the way for colonization before even Europeans get there. You mentioned diseases, but this is something I vaguely remember reading from an article, not in any of my history textbooks. Could you just expand on that a little bit? Boils down to domesticated animals, because the way the disease, most of the epidemic diseases that we get, anything from the flu to smallpox, they were originally viruses that affected the farm animals. And then because of living in close contact with those animals, those viruses mutated to be able to attach themselves to a human host. Uh, which is why you have those diseases in Africa, you have them in Europe, you have them in Asia, because people domesticated plants and animals. In the Americas, people domesticated plants. They did not domesticate animals. I mean, you had a few dogs, but dogs are not big disease carrier. Um, a few llamas in parts of South America, that's about it. There are no cows, no pigs, no goats, no chicken, no sheep, none of that stuff. Because of that, none of those diseases. They were not part of what existed out here. And so, which is great until you meet somebody who has those diseases and then they spread them and then you're screwed because you have no developed immunity over generations. So during that time period when European settlers or conquerors weren't there, you mentioned that the tribes were wiped out or a good chunk of them were wiped out due to disease. You start getting number where, you know, maybe just some Spaniards show up in Florida. And before you know it, the diseases have gotten all the way to Texas and the population has already been cut by 20% by the time Spaniards arrive. Stuff like that. So with the Plains Indian tribes, they're more inland. What was their first interactions or uh, contact with the Europeans? It varies because there were two different lifestyles on the plains. You had the guys who had been there the longest were usually sedentary tribes. They were farmers. They build their villages right along the main rivers, use the water from the rivers, that kind of stuff. Then you had a lot of the guys who were 
these buffalo hunting tribes living in teepees being nomadic, they have all have different stories. Some of them were small-scale hunters and gatherers who got the horses and they upscaled their lifestyle. Some used to be farmers, former forterists, and then with loss of land and other tribes getting kicked out and roaching into their land, they find themselves pushed at the edge of the plains when horses become available. They abandon farming, they go to bison hunting as their primary mode, and they completely change their lifestyle. So it varies. It depends from tribe to tribe where they originated from. Was there ever a point of short-term coexistence with the Europeans? Yeah. I mean, most of the time, you usually start with trade. Uh, you have uh, one period that I find super fascinating. It's Forterist is not in the Great Plains. Well, it starts also in the Great Plains, but primarily this was Forterist. The period of the fur trade. You know, in Europe, there was a lot of demand for force of animals, except that in Europe, they had wiped out a lot of the forests. So there weren't that many fur-bearing animals in Europe, but there was demand Hey, the Americas had a bunch of forests left, a lot of these animals, let's go there. <laughs> so they already got rid of their forest. So they're like, okay, we're going to take your forest now. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> the way you work through is interesting because even though the forest trade leads to bad things long term, because it's massive environmental exploitation, wipe out of some species, these will increase intertribal warfare as tribes are now competing to have access to better hunting grounds even more than they did before. So long term is a bad deal. But for a while, it's a really interesting space because you have a bunch of different tribes negotiating with a bunch of different Europeans. So there is no single player who rules over the whole thing. The fourth trade is a space of exchange. It's literally the frontier. But the frontier, not as one group of guys on one side, one or another, is more the shared space where people traded goods, cultural ideas, genes, as people intermarried all the time, and... So there's this really weird frontier culture that's a mix of French, English, different tribes, kind of mixed with allies, wars, breaking alliances, starting a super fascinating period. It's more the kind of, I mean, you get just a glimpse in that, but it's the kind of stuff that in a movie like Last of the Mohicans you get to see, where different tribes, different European powers and... Did trade exist with the tribes before? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was a system of trading alliances with one another, with tribes, and then Europeans come into this pattern. They will play a role in it. Now, becoming part of a market economy yeah. becomes a bad deal for That's the tribes. They have some kind of economics of their own of trading. It sounds more like hunter-gatherer slash trading, bartering. Yeah. yeah. But when European economics came, it just kind of created turmoil. Well, and it's weird. It's, it's a bad deal and it's, it's a good deal that turns into a bad deal. It's a good deal because it gives you access to things that you would have never imagined and they are awesome. You know, it's so much easier to cut down a tree and make a canoe out of it if you have a steel axe than if you have a stone axe. It's so much easier to use a needle made of iron than one made of bone to sew your clothes. It's so, you know, there are some of these goods make native life a lot easier. The price you pay, though, is that once you become part of a market economy and you depend on these goods, now, whereas before you try to keep a balance with how much you hunt, not out of some environmental principles, but because if you overhunt, then you starve, then it's a problem, right? Well, that's because you have a system that's based on self-sufficiency. Now you're part of a system that's based on money. 
a system that based on money, there is no end inside. There is no, okay, now I have my goods, let's stop trading for the next three years. Is Money needs to keep rolling in because the zeros can keep growing and more is always better than less. So now the pressure to overhunt is there. And so as a result of that, you do start seeing it happen. You do start seeing tribes that start emptying out their hunting grounds from certain species. And now they are screwed because the fur trade is bypassing them. But what do they have? They have a lot of guns from trading before. And, oh, look at that. The tribe further west has hunting grounds that are packed with animals and no guns. Marriage made in heaven. Great. So that increases intertribal. So in the long term, it leads to really bad consequences. But for a while, it's a really fascinating space because it's a space. It's not the classic story of just conquerors conquered. It's a place of cultural exchange where a lot of stuff is being traded back and forth, which makes it fascinating. But now in present day, this is kind of an interesting small scale look at how economics and increased efficiency can affect the environment, right? Because what is economics is management of finite resources, right? In simple terms, capitalism is converting finite materials into money. But if we make everything more efficient and make tools more efficient, we all automatically assume efficiency always equals good. But going back to our Taoist talk, everything within percentages and within the context, but now your ability and your efficiency to deplete finite resources is enhanced also. Like at max efficiency with stone axes, you're only going to clear so much trees, so many forests. Whereas now with steel axes or even better things like steel saws and whatnot, your max efficiency has become much higher, but the ability to replenish is still the same. Absolutely. And that's the problem of the whole capitalist idea of infinite growth in a finite system that just doesn't work. Just plain and see, which is why we look around and there are the environmental conditions that there are today. It's kind of a big problem, you know, it's like, how do you keep an economic system going that's based on growth if you are in a fishbowl and you cannot grow past that point? And it's tricky. Now, it's not that most other systems are like, you know, I've seen like native critiques of communism along the same line that they are saying, look, they are not really trying to deal with resources in a healthier way. They are just disagreeing about how to divide up the spoils. But the process of still this like wipe out of natural resources is not any different in in mindset. And so figuring out how you can create a system that's healthy, that's uh that doesn't lead to humans cannibalizing the very system that they depend on. That's the big challenge of the 21st century, because it's like, if you don't solve that one, you're, there is, you don't have much of a future, that's for sure. From that frontier cultural exchange brief period, what made it so brief? Well, because eventually the balance of power changes. Eventually, you have uh, in greater numbers of Europeans coming. Eventually, you have the wars between France and England. So there's no more playing different Europeans' power against one another where you can trade with one. But hey, these guys are going to give me a better deal if you don't treat me right, that kind of thing. Now, when the British kick out the French, now you have one major European power you're dealing with. Mm. Your negotiating room just got dramatically reduced. And so, plus you have more and more of them coming in. So, you know, that changes the dynamics considerably. Where the Lakota tribe today? Uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, 
Nebraska, that area. So once the British took over, what happened to the Plains tribes? Well, most of this stuff was happening. Like the British takeovers in the mid to late 1700s, uh, end of the French and Indian War was 1760. So by that point, it's still, there's hardly anybody on the Great Plains as far as Europeans go. It's mainly the tribes doing their thing. They haven't been touched yet. I mean, they have been touched indirectly. Now, or the occasional French, French fur trader showed up, but there's not like big concerted effort. It's only not even English, it's post-United States. Like when, uh, So they weren't as decimated and having wars like some of the other native peoples who were like right up at the coast where the settlers were coming in. The Plains tribes were, because of their area, were protected for a while. Yeah, it definitely took a lot longer to get there for sure. And then what happens is uh, 1803, there's the Louisiana Purchase. So the U.S., nominally buys a right of a huge chunk of what we become the United States from the French because Europeans didn't recognize native title to the land. They only recognize each other title. So the fact that the French for traders planted the flag in a few places meant that they owned the whole place. They didn't. They knew it. They couldn't control it. So when the U.S. says, we'll give you a bunch of money to give us nominal title to the land, French are like, sure. It's like you telling me, you give me $3,000 to sell me his car. I'm like, sure, I'll take the money. You know, I don't really <laughs> control it, but whatever. And so then the U.S. has a claim against other Europeans that they can come and take that land. But then, of course, they now need to deal with the natives who are the actual inhabitants there. And so the Lewis and Clark expedition started as a kind of fact-finding expedition to be able to then pave the way for colonization later down the road. And you don't really see heavy colonization until further into the 1800s. I mean, the first instance of major war between some of the nomadic plain tribes and the U.S. doesn't take place until the 1850s. Oh, wow. So that's pretty late in the game. Almost into modern history. And then it goes about 20 years. It goes like the end of the plain wars goes all the way to 1877. What happened in those 20 years? Um, there's a lot of fighting back and forth. There's a lot of um, event. There's a moment there where things don't go so well for the US because there's, you know, civil war has been going on. Between 1864 and 1868, there's major war between some of these tribes like the Lakota and Cheyenne and the US kind of cutting roads through their hunting grounds. And the war is not going well for the US. The tribes are nomadic, which means if they see you coming, they take down their teepees and they are gone. And they don't have a city that you can conquer. Okay. You know, being nomadic made them really hard to defeat them because you can never catch them. They are always gone. The only time that you see them is when they shoot at you and then they are gone. So it's very hard to catch them. But it happens. They will win some battles the way, but it's very hard to catch them by surprise. So you're dealing with this guerrilla warfare with this enemy that's always catching you and you don't see them. And... By 1868, the U.S., you know, post-Civil War, all this drama, they, are, they don't want to deal with it. So they signed this big treaty with some of the tribes, basically giving them everything they want. They say, look, you get to have this. Most of South Dakota will be yours. You'll have hunting rights in all these other lands. For any of the land that you now own to be legally acquired by the U.S. or by its citizens, 75% of your people have to agree which is a huge guarantee because you can't just get one guy drunk, say, now your leader sign, it's done. No, now you have to convince most of the tribe. They feel they won, right? The Lakota feel 
they won the war, they got what they wanted. Happy ending. Right, happy ending. Thank you, Daniele, for coming on the show. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now we're back to present, and yeah, they have their land now. Yeah, it's uh, the way most treaties were signed, they were designed to kind of as a temporary expedient. They were, you sign them because the war is not going well, and we don't want to lose, keep money and resources. Okay. Eventually, when we solve a few other problems and we're ready to deal with them, we can always break the treaty and start the war again. And so that's like the whole, like, that Fort Laramie Treaty was supposed to last forever and ever, last about six years. Somebody who clearly wanted to break the treaty, but they needed an excuse to get it going. They launched this expedition into the Black Hills of South Dakota, which was native land, but to try to find out whether there's gold or not. Because the second you get out and say there's gold, there's going to be a shitload of t- miners coming in, invading the land. The Lakota will retaliate. Now the U.S. will come in and say, hey, you can't kill. Yes, sorry about the fact that now our citizens are invading your land, but you can't really retaliate like that. Why don't you sell it to us? When they don't sell it, then it's like, okay, enough people want the land open. Screw the technicalities. Be done with the treaty. Just break the treaty and start the war again. Is this the first time they tried this or is this a playbook? No, this is a playbook. <laughs> this happens all the time. The only difference is that in this case, the tribes actually give them enough of a break to, you know, in some cases, the U.S. can just win in the first round. This is a case where they lose the first round, so they have to regroup a second and then go back for round two. And even round two doesn't look so good. In, I mean, it looks, you have the United States Army in the 1870s. The Lakota and Cheyenne, I think like, the entirety of the tribe is probably twenty to 30,000 people. It's nothing, you know, it's a David and Goliath kind of thing. But but even then, they rush it a little, like, you know, they were trying to wipe out all the bison so that these tribes would starve. They have nothing left to go on. But there's still enough going that the tribes, when they do attack them, there's one of the famous battles, big defeats of the U.S. Army there, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in Montana. Yeah where Custer and these guys get wiped out by the Lakota and Cheyenne. But eventually, that's kind of like the swan song. You know, you have your last cool battle, you still defeat the U.S. Army in the 1870s, but down the, these guys are getting too efficient at tracking you down. There's less and less bison to go around. One after another, the various tribes have to surrender. And uh, that's by 1877 is pretty much the gig is up. You know, across the U.S., there will be a few isolated cases. Like in the Southwest, there's going to be Geronimo and the Apache. They last maybe another decade into the 1880s. And then it's done. And what do you mean by done? Is that at that point they get sent to reservations? Yeah. I mean, a bunch of tribes were already on reservations, right? But that already happened in various ways. But by that point, it's everybody. You know, there really are no tribes left, not on reservations. So the Plains tribes weren't really affected by the Trail of Tears then. Uh-uh. It was basically war and starving them out and lying and breaking treaties. And then they were just decimated and defeated until they were sent yeah, to reservations. Trail of Tears was for tribes further east. As the U.S. conquer all around them was like, okay, what do we do with these guys who are in our midst? And the initial option that was pushed heavily was assimilation. You know, we're not racist. Yeah, these guys have weird dark skin, but if they become just like us culturally, they can be our dark little brother. So become Christian, learn how to read and write, become good copy, you know, all that stuff. 
eventually even that was not good enough so it was like no we actually want their land and we need it. we can't really wipe them out because that's a little too gory genocide is uncomfortable so why don't we just push them out of the way that way we don't have to assimilate them among us because who the hell wants a native as a neighbor but we don't have to get our hands dirty with genocide we'll just push them west and west in this case meant oklahoma because nobody wants to live in oklahoma anyway so just send them there to your point about assimilation, didn't some of the uh, native peoples, the tribes, try to assimilate as in they're going to dress uh, sure. you know, Western garb? Yep. They're all Christians now. So didn't they try to like prove that, hey, we are assimilated. We are very European now. Give us voting rights. Give us some kind of right to trials and rights to land. They wanted to be treated like other European, European-American citizens now, right? And they're like, nope, not good enough. You're never one of us. And that's the problem. Even later, when like the period of the boarding school will happen in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the promise of the boarding school, I mean, the guy who created the boarding schools for natives even flat out stated like his sentence was that the goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. (laughs) Meaning we can save you as a human being if we squeeze all the Indianness out of you. But even that wasn't real because the boarding schools were really good at the killing the Indian part and squashing native cultures. But the reality of racism in the late 1800s, early 1900s is that no, no matter what you promise, you the doors to white society were not open if you are native, no matter how assimilated you were. So that's where it's really kind of you get stuck in this no man's land where you can't really be the way you were and keep your culture but we are not really going to open the door to real assimilation either. So you get stuck in between with really generations of these guys will be lost because they are not at home with their parents in the, you know, they don't belong to that culture anymore, but they are not, they can't really join white mainstream American culture either. And so they are kind of stuck in limbo. And they created this limbo because they destroyed one yeah. and they won't accept you in the other. So you have nowhere to go but limbo. Yeah. We talked a lot about the British and the French, but I've learned either through pop culture references mm-hmm. that the other Europeans that were able to come to North America first were the Scandinavians or the Norwegians. There were some that come, yeah. They will, uh, they will arrive. They will largely become part of mainly British settlements. They will leave. In fact, when we say British, it's kind of bullshit because it's like there's um, even like the British colonies initially weren't really that unified culturally because you had people from different nations who were British. They weren't really British, you know, they were exactly some Norwegian guy in a British colony. They may not even speak English. They may, you know, so there were people spoke different languages, often at different religions. They definitely belonged to different social classes. There really wasn't a whole lot to unify them. As weird as that may sound, one of the things that create a common American identity is hating Indians. And that happens largely during the French and Indian War. The French and Indian War was 1754 to 1760. What happened there is that if you are at the frontier, when the war breaks out and the tribes allied with the French start raiding British settlement, doesn't really matter if you are German or English or Irish, doesn't matter if you are higher or lower class, doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant, you're still getting raided by the tribes. So the one thing that now you all hated each other before on religion, language, social class, but the one thing you now all have in common is those guys are our enemies. Screw the natives. You hate them too, I hate them too. We have that in common. That start becoming the glue 
that creates a more unified society of what will eventually become American society. Well, that is the basis of even modern nationalism. It's not even about what we all have in common or what we all like. It's more about who we all hate together. Of course. That's what it is. But what you're mentioning with egging on stuff to create a war just to take their land and even using what we wouldn't consider like classical white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans reminds me of the U.S. war with Mexico, where it was like kind of this antagonizing of Mexico until we can force a war. And then a majority of the soldiers were new immigrants. And a lot of them didn't even speak English. Yep. You know, a lot of them were Germans or Irish or, uh, you know, they weren't even Protestants, a lot of them. And they didn't even know who the Mexicans were yet. Of course. They didn't even, they hadn't even seen a native uh, Indian yet. Yep. And they had to go fight these wars. And then it ended up after the U.S. had battered, was it Spain at that point or was it? Uh, Mexico. It was Mexico. Mexico had achieved independence already in 1821. The war was 1846, 1848. Okay. So it's about two decades into it. And then after, you know, egging on this war and fighting this war, depleting Mexico, they're like, okay, here's some money. Let us buy. Well, we now have California and some other states, right? California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, plus little pieces of like Nevada, Oklahoma, things like that. But based on what you were telling me earlier, the same stuff that they did with Mexico is the same playbook. They already perfected it with the, the native peoples and then they, they just keep using it. And it feels like that's been the basis of uh, US American foreign policy. <laughs> Yeah, that actually is where the sentence, which I'm sure you've heard a bunch of times, the term manifest destiny come from. It comes from the, it's used for the first time during the war with Mexico. Now, the idea existed before, which was this notion that, quote unquote, superior civilizations have a God-given right to take the land of inferior civilization. Of course, the way you define superior and inferior is usually in a very self-serving. If you are like us, you're superior. And usually that means Christian, white, Northern European, that kind of stuff. If you are on the other side, then you know the browner you are, the less Christian you are, the all of that, then you are the inferior. And really, it's in the interest of humanity for us to take over your land because we're better. We'll make a better world. And it sounds like the old feudal idea of divine right of kings. Sure. It's all appointed by God. Yeah, it's totally. There's a very heavy Christian element to this. It's based on this notion of like the battle between the forces of good, good Christians stay on the side of God versus the forces of evil, anybody who's not Christian. And that still reminds me again of our current foreign policy. It seems like U.S. always on the side of God. Everybody else, somebody else's side. Yeah, I mean, the whole system, religiously speaking, is when you look at the Abrahamic religions with, I mean, you do find that theory, the theory of holy war, you do find it in Jewish scriptures with like Moses and stuff. You then see it, but you know, realistically in Jewish history, they don't have usually much of the muscle to carry it out. Christians will pick it up and run with it big time. Muslims will pick it up and run with it. But the whole ideology of holy war is just, classic western religion stuff very which is also why you know what are the two most popular religions in the world in terms of numbers christianity and islam which one are the two religions that have the biggest history of wars of conquest and or christianity and the, you know most people and islam most people don't get converted because somebody knock on the door and say 
listen to this, isn't this a great idea? They got converted because somebody shows up with a sword to your neck and say, you're going to convert or I'm going to chop your head off. And you go, I've always wanted to convert. This is a great idea. Yeah, Please, yeah. I want to become a Christian or Muslim or whatever the hell. You know, That's how most of the world has started practicing the religion that they do. I think also those two religions in particular, out of the Abrahamic ones, and even the religions prior to that, those two are especially like fear-based as in what happens to you in the afterlife, right? Sure. As far as my understanding of Jewish religion, they don't really even talk about heaven or hell or like this afterlife where it's yep. like those two are like, if you don't follow us, you're going to burn in hell. Yeah. A lot of that stuff, by the way, comes from, it was kind of introducing Judaism, but it mainly comes from Zoroastrianism. Yeah. And so it's where Zoroastrianism kind of introducing the Ju concept within Judaism, but they didn't run with it much. And then Christianity and Islam will really run with it. Because that was the first religion where they had a singular God, right? Yeah. I mean, who, who knows? They're like the first proven case of monotheism is in Egypt, but it lasts pretty short time. There's, you know, this one pharaoh who's like, the sun god is the only one. All other ones are either fake or demons. But he's only in power for like, I forgot how long, 18 years, 20 years, something like that. And so once he's dead, the Egyptians are like, fuck that guy, we'll go back to polytheism. <laughs> so while technical is the first proven example, didn't leave much of a legacy. And then depending on when you consider Jewish monotheism to begin, which is very debated, um, yeah, Zoroastrianism possibly before definitely influenced Judaism. And then from there, you got all the modern Western religions. Once you come up with like the most hulked up God where, oh, all the other gods were like one of many gods, but it wasn't the absolute strongest, baddest, like it turned into my dad is better than your dad. Of course. And they created the ultimate dad. And on top of that, they created the thing where, and if you don't follow my dad, then um, something bad is going to happen to you. Well, monotheism is kind of built on that because if you have the idea that there is only a singular God that tells you this is the way we need to live life. That's the right way. There are not too many options at that point. You either follow it or you don't. There's a line in the sand that's drawn there and you either are with us or you are against us. There's not a whole lot of room for neutrality. You know, it's different from concepts like in more, most Asian traditions, most indigenous traditions. They have this sense of the divine, but that you can never really fully know it. At best, you get a glimpse. So if somebody has a different viewpoint, different may mean bad doesn't automatically mean bad you know it's like let me check it out oh actually that i like your stuff i'm gonna borrow it i'm gonna add it to mine so you can have two three four five religions at the same time in a monotheistic one there's only room for one right because there's one god telling you what to do that's it all other choices are the bad ones if you're not with god then you're with the devil if you're not with our one way then you're one of the bad guys as far as history, right? A lot of people know of the Dark Ages. They've heard of this. And then they also hear about the rise of Christianity. And they think of this as two different periods when it's actually the same period. The Dark Ages where it's dark because it's also the, we became stupid again, <laughs> is coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, also the rise of Christianity. Well, I mean, theocracies are general rule. They are not the most open to innovation or creating new things or all of that stuff. So in fact, it's funny when people are like, oh, you know, all the things that we value in the US today, individual rights, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, they are a heritage of Judeo-Christian values. I'm like, 
No, they were created in spite of Judeo-Christian values. You know, if you look at Christianity, Christianity was around for what, almost 1800 years before the US come into being. Do you see anything popping up in the history of Christianity before that even resemble giving the... It's the Enlightenment in reaction to the theocracy and the squashing of religious and individual rights that took place under a Christian theocracy that the Enlightenment pushed back and creates something that will give the theoretical foundations to things like the United States. So the whole notion that that's tied to Christianity, like if that's tied to Christianity, why didn't it happen in the 1700 years before? It's not that they didn't have a chance to make it happen. You know, If it fits with those values, then you would expect to see it, except that you don't because it doesn't. And there's also this retconning by conservatives with this, to your point, Judeo-Christianity. During the Enlightenment, there was no Judeo-Christian. No. I think Christians were still trying to kill the, the Jews. Jews. Of course. Which is one of the things that's funny today about like the love for Israel among uh, evangelical Christians. Christian fundamentalists hated Jews forever. And, so, and a lot of it is born from these... Uh, popular interpretation of the Bible that kicks in in the early 1900s where they start thinking that three conditions have to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back and that there has to be a state of Israel, Israel needs to be at war with its enemies and they have to rebuild the temple. And so the Christian fundamentalist idea will be like, okay, we need to support the creation of the state of Israel, they need to be at war with the enemies and they need to rebuild the temple, then Jesus will come back. And so it's not so much that they suddenly discover after persecuting them for hundreds of years that they love Jews, is that they need Jews in Israel to act as bait so that they can get into fight with their enemies so that Jesus comes back. Useful idiot. Yeah, that's not really like, oh, we like you. It's yeah. more we need you for... Yeah, that's not a real ally. No. <laughs> and going into that and talking about evangelicals and how much influence they have now in politics... I don't even know if, again, maybe they just always had it and now we're more aware of it or it's more in our face. The blind spot I see what a lot of people call themselves, going back to what we were talking about earlier, centrists or moderates, is that there's this belief that we have this like common view or monolithic view about what is right or wrong or morality slash ethics, right? Because we talk about this is the right thing to do, this is the moral thing, as if we're all agreeing on what's moral. And the differentiation I'm making here is that now with the rise of these theocratic religions, monolithic, you have the separation from, I don't even know exactly if there was a point in history where it separates, but there is a separation, which is how me and maybe you, maybe a lot of people would define morality as lessening the suffering of human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this other group, which might even outnumber us, considers morality about duty, following the rules, especially based on our religion, right? So we think of it as monolithic. So we could get along because we all want to be just and we want the right moral things. And it's like, yeah, but what we mean by morals, one side might mean like less suffering of human beings, maybe even animals versus following the rules and doing the duty, right? And a lot of times, maybe those rules, like if you believe uh, the one rule is like homosexuality is wrong, then it is your duty, the moral thing to follow that, right? And a lot of times there is some overlap, so we get confused, but those overlaps can be coincidental. Of course. So think about this. What is the highest moral good? Religious participation or helping people? If your morality is based on lessening human suffering, then religious participation might be neutral 
and helping people might be the highest good. But if your morality is based on duty, religious participation, or serving your country or nationalism, even at the cost of more human suffering, might be the highest good. So me as a parent, I have a choice, right? Do I define morality as duty to my son, like going to church and going to school and kneeling at the national anthem and pledging allegiance to our country? Or do I define morality based on lessening human suffering? Consciously or unconsciously, all parents make this choice. And some people listening might be like, those are things you can't even question. You should never question duty. But this decision between duty or lessening human suffering, parents aren't the only ones that make it. We make this decision for ourselves also. But this creates two very different kinds of worldviews, right? And that defines all political risks. That defines politics. And we can't understand these different worldviews and why they can't get along only because we assume people all define morality and the highest good the same way. If we understand that there's two moralities and both groups don't want the same things, then there's no confusion. But morality, once it's set, you never question it, right? You don't question morality. And if your morality is based on duty, then even questioning morality is considered immoral. Like questioning whether I should kneel or pledge allegiance or serve my country, even questioning that, like questioning whether I should believe in God or go to church, that's all considered immoral. Questioning even if there is a God, that's immoral because your duty is to just do it, to follow those rules, not to think about it. Whereas lessening human suffering requires reason, right? We have to think about, oh, is this going to hurt somebody? Let me think about it from the other person's point of view. Let me think about it from the other side. Let me think about how my actions are going to extend further than me. Let me think about the consequences of my actions. The other side, like you said, lazy thinking, right? Just assumes, assumes it's all going to work out well. And even if it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you're not supposed to think about these decisions. You're supposed to just do it. But then how do we gain progress? And if it weren't for the side of lessening human suffering, there would be no moral progress. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I think uh, last I was watching Game of Thrones and there's this, the formula that they prescribe for when they knight you. And two of those made a lot of sense to me. The third made no sense because there's like, I charge you to be brave. Bravery, I understand. I get it. Good value. I can deal with it. Then there was this idea of uh, charge you to protect the innocent. I like that. That's sweet. That's using. And then there was the one about I charge you to be just. The fuck does that mean? That to me is like empty words. It's like justice. What exactly are we talking about? Because yeah. that can mean anything to anybody. Yeah. That's, as you were saying, the meaning of justice is so, it sounds like we have an agreement there. What we mean by justice will mean, pretty much everyone on earth will argue that they are trying to follow justice from Stalin to Hitler to Christian fundamentalists to Osama bin Laden to modern US, everybody's we it's because we're building a just society. Yeah, except they would use the same word, but as the Princess Bride teaches, I don't think you know what you mean by that. You know, it's like we use words sometimes in a way where the meaning is so like the term is the same, but there are about 45 different things that we mean by it, and we imply that there's a common understanding yeah. when there isn't. And I think that's a blind spot for a lot of so-called intellectuals too, is we think, well, surely we all want the same thing. 
So we have to work across the aisle. We have to see things like, I don't think actually that everybody wants the same thing because they might not define something like justice or morality the same way. You look at even the Bible, right? Who's the worst one in there? And it's the traitor. Because in a duty-based morality system, the one who betrays is the worst thing. But sometimes betrayal doesn't mean the most amount of human suffering, right? So this other system of morality might have somebody else as the worst. And that's the thing that uh, a lot of people overlook and just assume that we have a common idea of right and wrong, and we don't. There's a Gnostic heresy that you should pitch to your Korean Christian friends that's <laughs> going to make you real popular. One of the Gnostic ideas was that all the stuff of the Old Testament, absolutely true, the God of totally true, all real, with a twist. Uh, the real God retired from the world and is sitting back, letting the events play out. The God of the Old Testament is actually a demon who thrives on human suffering and poses God to try to create as much struggle and conflict among people ever. These were, by the way, I mean, it's a very weird version of Christianity, but technically it was a Christian group. But they believe, yeah, yeah, all true except flipped. And uh, because they argue, look at the consequence, look at the amount of bloodshed and suffering created in the name of this stuff. It's, that's that's a demon posing as your friend. I was like, holy shit, that's a, I can see why they got wiped out. Well, even if we just think of it as the framework of this other type of morality, lessening human suffering, even without that flip, that might still be the definition of Christianity because you look at a lot of previous religions when the end of the world comes, the gods fought on the side of humans to like protect them. Like, oh, we were fucking around with them a lot and we picked on them, but like shit, Ragnarok is coming or whatever is coming, right? We got to protect them now. Let's stop it. Whereas Christianity is the first one. It's like, nope, we're on the side of doomsday, right? So let's say that were to happen and some alien force, which they call God is coming to kill us all. The Christians will all be on their side and us and the Avengers and all, all the scientists will be trying to fight them, right? Because in a classical sense, even in a Disney sense, alien invader trying to kill us all would be the bad guy, right? So that's another example of like how, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but again, they would think them killing us all, that's the moral just thing. Whereas we're like, nope, killing us all would be a very, very bad thing. So in a way, then wouldn't you call that the demon even without having to do that version? Right. <laughs> in every other religion, that's the bad guy coming yeah. down and killing us all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, if your good guy implies death and sufferings for lots of human beings, I would question the definition of good and bad. So what happened then to these Plains Indians after they went to the reservation? What was that like? Sucks, because you go from having a life where you are nomadic, uh, self-reliant. Now you can no longer hunt buffalo. You're stuck on a reservation. You're not nomadic. You are, your economy has been destroyed. Your culture is getting destroyed. You're essentially depending on fairly miserable handouts on a monthly basis with real no prospect of building anything new. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, the rates that you still see today of crazy high levels of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, stuff like that kicks in. You know, it's like, okay, the good life is over. There's really, there's this feeling that where you're stuck in a situation where it's very hard to get out and create something new. And people will do what people do when they are miserable. They'll just drown their sorrow in alcohol. They'll do, and then you, if you are the next generation and you grow up with that and you see that, what is that your parents, your grandparents, and everybody around you does? They drink to forget about the shit they are in. 
well, that just becomes the culture. That's what you pick up on. It's kind of it's really no different than growing up in like some shitty ghetto somewhere, and all you see around you is drug abuse to try to forget about the fact that life around you sucks. And then when that becomes the norm, even when those specific conditions change, it's kind of hard to step out. So is it just basically poverty? Yeah, there's a lot of poverty for sure. Uh, there's uh, there has been a lot of um, all the classic negative things that you see happen in really poor places. With the addition that these you are in the middle of, you know, you are in a rural area versus a city, so there are even less opportunities in a sense. And the population has just been dwindling over time. No, no, it's grown if anything. Okay, um, but. Uh, and as things have, you know, there have been spaces and situations that have been made better. There's, um, you know, things like even the casinos in the 1990s brought some money to some native. The stereotype is that everybody became a millionaire. Of course, that's not the case. It's uh, first, most tribes don't have casinos. Second, the ones that do have casinos, most of them make, they cater to a really small audience because they're in the middle of nowhere. So the ones who made it big are relatively few. But still, even that, that was some money that allowed to start some things, so better than nothing. And that's where we are now. Yeah. Where is the happily ever after? Where is this archetype story that the Western world kept promising us? Because that was ultimate conflict, right? So, so the story is always promising ultimate conflict, really Leads bad. To some great stuff. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, though, because... Um, I think as I read and been involved with this stuff for so long that none of the ugly stuff of this story really fazed me that much. Like there's a book that I often recommend called The Dull Nice of Pine Ridge. That's a great Lakota story from the like late 1800s to modern days following this family over various generations. And I always think of the book as funny and hilarious and kind of happy. And everybody who reads it that I'm like, oh man, it's an awesome book, but it's depressing as hell. I'm like, what do you mean? And no, it's like, oh yeah, there's a massacre. Oh yeah, they got their land taken. Oh yeah. They're... But to me, it's like, yeah, I know that stuff already, whatever. Uh, but look at that. They managed to joke in the process. They managed to crack out. Look at this. Like, to me, it's like, that's the part where I put the accent because it's interesting. All the abuse and the broken treaties and the stuff is like, yeah, I heard that when I was five. I kind of. I'm not going to say I'm over it, but in the sense it's like I, that I take for granted. That just like, sure, of course, we know that stuff. But there's also more to it, you know, and that's one of the things I like about the book. It's showing their spirit, their humor, their attitude. That was, that was a lot of fun. So basically, the massacres are so ubiquitous. <laughs> After a while, you don't even notice it. But at the same time, if we focus too much on that, we don't even pay attention to what were the strengths to their culture. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what interests me. It's like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of bad shit, but so that we don't turn it just into a, why guys feel really bad about yourself and everybody else, let's tell each other that we're poor victims and whip ourselves. Which, by the way, there's a truth to that, but that doesn't help anybody. It's like, once we know that and we acknowledge that, and that's a real thing, let's take another couple of steps and like, what are the things culturally that have been done to create something cool out of it? What are the things that, you know, and that's where it gets interesting. Yeah. To our original point earlier in this whole episode is uh, what you were saying about binary thinking. We can't be binary, right? Because sometimes if you focus even on the thing with good intentions, which is like, look, these people really suffered like something that's coming from empathy. If you focus just on that part of uh, history only, then what are the good parts of it that you're highlighting? Like we could talk about all the bad things that happened to, let's say, black society, right? 
but what are some of their strengths? Do you know anything good about them, right? You might be a white ally and then realize you know nothing really about black culture. You know about all the bad events that happened and that could happen across the world. You might go to India and know what all the British did, but what are the strengths to the Indian culture? Are you even a fan of the culture? Right. Do you know anything about it? And so I think we have to be able to kind of look at it like it's messy, it's rich and textured. And it's both, exactly, because you want to acknowledge past abuses, because otherwise you are, yeah, pull yourself up by your bootstrap kind of model, but it's just denying reality. But at the same time, you don't want to just dwell forever only on past abuses, because it's like, okay, I get it. There are shitty cards that have been given historically. How can we play those cards in the best possible way today? Which I think is what is missing from a lot of like motivational type of thinking or positive thinking. They tend to skip the acknowledging the shit part first, and they just jump directly to the conclusion, which if you don't acknowledge the part in between, it feels fake, disingenuous, and kind of ridiculous. You know, it's like, no, not everything is for the best. Some things are shit. Some terrible things have been yeah. done. People do get shitty cards to start yeah. with. Once we acknowledge that, then let's move on too. It's like, okay, we don't want to just promote a cult of victimhood forever and it's all about bad things that have been done by others. It's like, okay, let's look now at the empowering side. What can we do with this? But one without the other, you know, one just promotes victimhood forever. The other one is denying reality in a very self-serving way. Both in the right proportion is what allows you to have a sense of reality as well as to also have a more positive outlook of like, okay, now what I can do about it from here. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier um, about thinking things all the way through to its conclusion. One side is like, okay, if I keep agreeing with you and just keep thinking that all the way through, what does that mean? I guess you're just fucked. That's it. You're fucked. Right. That's it. Just go kill yourself. And the other side is there is no problem. Exactly. So <laughs> let's not fix anything. Yeah. Both both roads lead to the status quo. Yep. Nothing changes. Mm -hmm. And for things to actually change, you have to first see what are things that can change. And the other side is what are things that need improving? Absolutely. So yeah, the happy ending, the ellipsis at the end, the dot, dot, dot. There's a lot of shit in that dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I think the happy ending though is that's why I like individual stories. That's why sometimes I like biographies. That's why I like because it's like the social contest may be shit. There may be, but it's always Jack Johnson who managed to find ways to become the heavyweight champion of the world in a contest that doesn't support it, to uh, manage to have a pretty damn happy life in the middle of drama and chaos and shit, manage to find a way. Or the, you know, I like. Because that's more reality. It's like the odds that you're going to change the social context and everything is going to work out for the best for everybody. Yeah, good luck if you're waiting for that. But like how in the middle of crap you can carve a path that lead for you and some other people around you to have a good experience. That to me is fascinating. And it's probably more, we all would like to wake up tomorrow in utopia, but the odds are probably not happening and if you are waiting for that to happen to be happy you're gonna wait a long fucking time let's end there <laughs> thank you for your time daniel where can people find you um you know the gods of google are good so it's uh you know if you can manage to type my name correctly in google it will show up the you know twitter i think it's uh, the my first initial the letter d and last name bolelli b-o-l-e-l-l-i the public facebook page uh 
I recently got bullied into starting Instagram. I still don't get it, but okay, <laughs> I'll do that. So, you know, all, all the good stuff. History on Fire is now, mo- you can still get it for free. I mean, if you subscribe on iTunes, you will get a couple of episodes a year for free, and there are a little bit in the archives. Most of it will be now through Luminary as a subscription service. Drunken Taoist, on the other hand, is just freely available. And for History on Fire, you have a website, right? So to make it simpler, they could just go to the website and they'll know where to go. To yeah, find I'm sure the way, we're setting it up now to have, I mean, the website is there, but we're setting up the connection to Luminary of how to go from there and so on. What's your website? Uh, historyonfirepodcast.com. Not to be confused with historyonfire.com with like a Christian fundamentalist who owns <laughs> it. That is like, it's a different story. All right. Thank you, Daniele. Sweet. What they watch in the Ate Lomaki, I know.